Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Severian, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing today? Charles, I'm good, except that I fell last night. I slipped because it was raining out and I slammed my lower back into concrete stairs. And now I am in some amount of pain. I I'm sorry. May need Don't to go that. to the hospital. Yeah, I, I may need to go to the hospital. Probably not. The thing is, you're committed to podcasting, so you got to do this first. Well, so here's the thing. The thing is, if I do, I know that I'm going to have to check a form that categorizes me by race. This is a powerful segue. This is the, this and, is the next and segue. Based on and based on no one what has I ever checked, a segue like that. I may be given priority access to certain forms of care, given what is going on in the medical bureaucracy. And that brings us to what we want to talk about today. Me? which is the logic of racial classification itself. Charles, why don't you elaborate? I'm sorry, I want to back up and point out that you're saying that like if you came in with a back injury and were black, you would get treated better or possibly there, worse. The, a, there was a proposal to treat to treat black people, to give black people automatic admission to a cardiac specialist unit in Boston. So it's not. It's you think it's you think it's far fetched, but but it's coming, Charles. It's coming. I'll, I'll 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 take your word for it. No, I mean, so so we're interested. I mean, we've talked a lot on the podcast about sort of the interaction between law and contemporary progressivism, the, the sort of phenomenon of how how institutions and particularly government institutions can produce cultural norms. And today we're interested in racial classifications, which is sort of a broad category. But you know, if you've ever filled out a form. You participated in this, you, you probably checked actually two different boxes. You probably checked one that said whether or not you were Hispanic and then another one that said, are you white, black, Asian American, American Indian, other. And the reason that you check those boxes is that they are sort of the the government standard categories, categories for divvying up race in the United States. They've been with us since the 1970s, arguably longer. We'll talk about the history today. But they, you know, they they profoundly shape the way that we think about what kind of thing race is. And they're also often irrational, absurd, and the product more political dispute than of any basis in material reality, never mind social reality. And you know, I, our our guest is our guest has written a great book on this topic. Before we get to introducing him, I guess Aaron, what are you interested in talking about today? Yeah, well, so I'll I'll let our guest speak for for himself. But real quick, you know, to me, this topic this is a classic case study in the James C. Scott idea of legibility that states ha- and we've brought this up on the podcast before that states have to kind of come up with ways of seeing their populations to administer various programs. You know, civil rights and affirmative action programs are no exception. That's where a lot of these racial categorizations originated, the need to classify people to determine whether they got certain government benefits or not. And as we'll see, you know, often the reason the categories get drawn the way they do is just kind of because it's like convenient for the government to do it that way at a particular moment in time. And unfortunately, making population legible can have a lot of downsides and screw over a lot of people and paper over a very messy social reality. So I'm interested in how this sort of demand for legibility ends up not just sort of obfuscating messy social reality, but then also making it messier and making it worse. I mean, what, what what's your main interest? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, relatedly, 
you know, these these categories, are, you know, ra racial categories are so essential to how we think about politics in our present moment, how we thinking about the Hispanic vote and where it goes, thinking about the roles of black people in the Democratic Party and white people in the Republican Party. And the sort of categories in which we have these conversations are a product of government policy. And they create these sort of weird exclusions and inclusions, which are problematic. So, we'll, you know, we'll talk about the history of who gets to be included as an affirmative action beneficiary, which groups get to be included, which ones don't. But but I'm interested in sort of how acts of, you know, contingent acts of government decision making like you're talking about have these big cultural downstream effects. Our guest is a great guy to talk about all this with. Aaron, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah. So our guest is David Bernstein. He is a professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and the executive director of the Liberty and Law Center. He is the author of several books. The most recent one, which we're going to talk about today, is called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial, Racial Classification in America. It's great. Everyone should read it. David, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, and feel free to keep praising the book. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, so, so, so sort of as an opening provocation, we'll get into the history in a minute, but Basically, what your book shows is that these categories are very contingent and arbitrary. And I think someone might ask, well, so what? Like, yeah, you know, lots of government graded categories are arbitrary. You know, there's always going to be some arbitrariness. Why does that matter? Well, you know, for one thing, it should matter, at least constitutionally speaking. I do teach constitutional law. Oddly enough, there have been precious few challenges to how the government categorizes people as opposed to whether they categorize them and then dole out benefits to begin with. So almost every case and certainly every Supreme Court case so far has been about can the government engage in ethnic and racial preferences. And there, again, have been precious few challenges to saying, well, hey, why are these groups preferred and not others? Or why is this group defined this way and not some other way? In the couple of cases where it's really come up, the courts have said, I think, quite dubiously that this is what is called, that this decision-making by the government is only subject to what they call the rational basis test, which is a very liberal forgiving test where the government can basically do whatever it wants. But in theory, when the government classifies people by race, it's supposed to be subject to a much stricter compelling interest test. The government has to really show that it has to go about things the way it did. And there's no narrow way of doing it. And when you tell someone, Hey, if you're Brazilian, you don't get preferences no matter how dark your skin is, but when you're Argentine, you do, no matter how European by descent and how European you look is, that, you know, that should be a problem because the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause really is to stop the government from giving people arbitrary privileges and detriments. The other problem with these categorizations, which you've already alluded to, is that they become their own social reality to some extent. And people organize around these categories, groups form, political lobbies form, and it creates potentially a balkanization of society, right? So one thing that we learn in the book that I learned from writing the book is there was really no such thing as, for example, Asian Americans or Hispanic or Latino Americans 50 years ago. And the only reason people think of themselves as being members of those categories, not everyone does, but those who are members of those categories who think of themselves, the only reason they think of themselves as being members of that category, as opposed to just being Chinese or Cuban American or just American 
is because the government has imposed this category on them. And that has real effects on people's lives. And whether those effects are for better or for worse, one could argue about, but it's a really important aspect of American life today. And it was done in this completely haphazard, arbitrary way. So let me, let me, I guess, sort of take a step back and try to give our audience some of that history to which we've alluded, to which you're alluding. When you say these categories were constructed 50, 60 years ago, what do you mean and what came before it? What does it mean to say that, you know, most that Asian American is in a unitary category, Hispanic American is in a unitary category? So historically speaking, the main racial distinction in the United States was obviously black and white or Negro in the old days versus Caucasian or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, on census forms or otherwise, there were, those were the two main categories. Those were the two largest populations of people, everyone from Europe and eventually the Middle East and North Africa was considered white. Anyone with African descent was potentially considered to be black. There were different state laws about whether it was one quarter or one eighth or any one drop of African blood. And, you know, socially there were similar relations, but we of course did have another group that came to the United States. We had people from Asia, especially Chinese and Japanese and Filipino Americans. And the Filipinos never really had their own category, but the Chinese and Japanese were tabulated separately. What we now call Latinos were basically considered white for most of American history, unless they had obvious African features, in which case they'd be classified as black. And beyond that, we really didn't have other categories. Starting in the 1950s, before the 1950s, there was really no benefit almost ever to being characterized as anything but white. By the 1950s, the federal government started enforcing anti-discrimination norms against federal contractors, and they gave, would give them these forms where they had to fill out how many employees of each group do you have? And that's when the issue of who do we have besides black and white sort of came to the fore. So the mix of groups that were possible, we have Chinese, Japanese, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Jews, Italians, and so forth. And which of these groups will be considered official minorities and which will not? Yeah, well, and, and you know, what's what's interesting in part there is that I can say so many of these decisions were made at a time when the population composition was so different, right? So when, when you talk about Hispanic Americans, that is a category is there were there were Puerto Ricans who are U.S. nationals, there were Mexicans and there were Cubans, and they made up a relative, relatively small fraction of the U.S. population. The same thing is true even more so for Asian Americans. So it seems to me almost like these categories were constructed at a time when they had a much smaller non-white, non-black population in to, to categorize than exists in the sort of much more diverse America that we have today. Yeah, that's a really a significant reason why the categories themselves are so arbitrary and haphazard is that really during the civil rights period in the 60s and early 70s, the action was let's figure out how to bring African-Americans into the American mainstream after centuries of slavery and Jim Crow and discrimination and so forth. The Asian population in 1960, which is when the original federal civil rights bureaucracy was getting going with these government contracts, was less than 1% of the population. There, were, there, there weren't even really many Cubans yet because Castro hadn't driven everyone out yet. So we had a, a fair number of Puerto Ricans in New York and other places in the Northeast and some Mexicans in the Southwest. But for the most part, I mean, again, Hispanics, what we now call Hispanics, were generally considered white. If you did not look obviously non-white, you were not really treated 
socially or any or otherwise differently. So for example, you can't imagine in the 1950s, there being I Love Lucy, where Ricky is black or Ricky is Chinese, but it was okay that he was Cuban. The network was a little worried about it, but it turned out it was okay because if you're Hispanic and you are, don't have especially dark skin, no one's going to suggest that you're non-white. So the time when U.S. approval of interracial marriage was at 4%, and that's not a, a, a mistake of my part, four, like four out of 100%, it was okay for Ricky Cuban to be married to Lucille McGillicuddy. So no one was really also... No one was really terribly worried about any group except black Americans and white Americans and, you know, Mexican American groups. So here we want a piece of the civil rights action too, because some of us do look non-white and we get discriminated against. A lot of Puerto Ricans have African ancestry and the government said, okay, let's add Puerto Ricans and Mexican Americans to our civil rights forms. And we don't have to worry about white Hispanics getting the benefits because the way the forms worked in those days, it was not self-identification, it was by appearance. So the employer would figure out, well, does this person look black, look Puerto Rican, and if you didn't, you wouldn't be listed. And with the Chinese and the Japanese, they were added to the forms for no particular reason, really. Everyone's like, well, it's like 0.6% of the population, we'll just throw them in, why not? It was, it was No one really cared one way or the other, actually. We'll, we'll get to sort of the bigger picture stuff in a minute, but but this kind of arbitrary line drawing that that took place you list a lot of examples of where it leads to just totally counterintuitive and crazy results could you run through some of the craziest examples sure so let's let's fast forward a little bit to the 1970s there was an interagency commission where the government decided you know we're getting all this data for civil rights enforcement for the department of health and human services and the department of health education and welfare. We try to keep track of educational progress of different groups, but every agency has their own definition of, so some agencies, for example, are using Spanish speaking. Some are using Spanish surnames. Some are separating out Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and Cubans, and some are using other criteria and some have other minorities like undefined and who knows which and who, who's being considered other minorities is not clear and so forth and so on. So they decide, okay, we really need to centralize this and have one standard across the federal agencies so that we could figure out, so our data could be consistent and that we could, you know, it was just really for administrative convenience, like you said, seeing like a state, we need to tabulate people for certain purposes. So we need to, to put them in categories. So there was, you know, you might think that this would have led to massive public debate and discussion about who should be in what categories and so forth. But really it was all done kind of very quietly, these commissions that no one was really paying attention to. You go back and look at newspapers and so forth at the time, no one is writing op-eds or holding any kind of demonstrations about this. And just for example, to give you an example of how arbitrary this was, for the category that became what we now know as Hispanic or Latino, they basically just recruited three young employees from the government, from random agencies, one was a young Puerto Rican woman, one was a Mexican-American, and one was a Puerto Rican, the three major groups at that time. And they just said, get together once a week and figure out what the category should be called and who should be in it. So they eventually decided that the category should be called Hispanic, not Latino. And that has implications because if you, if you say it's Latino, that may include, for example, Brazilians depending on at least some definitions of Latino would include them because they are in Latin America. But once it's 
Hispanic, then it only applies to people who have Spanish-speaking ancestry, but it also includes white people from Spain and white people from wherever who happen to have Spanish-speaking ancestry. So that's one really bizarre consequence, is that to the extent that we're worried about dark-skinned people from Latin America facing discrimination, Brazilians are not tabulated as in, mm-hmm. in, in any category, really. There's really not clear what you do with Brazilians unless they're sufficiently African and they could be called African-Americans, but people from Spain become Hispanics and become a member of a minority group. Another controversy, random, sort of just random happenstance, was that the initial classification that was proposed for white slash Caucasian included what we now call South Asians, people from India, who are in fact primarily Caucasian anthropologically. But it just so happened that a new Indian American group, there weren't that many Indian Americans in the country until like the early 70s, a new Indian American group had formed, and they were looking into how do we get in on civil rights protections, affirmative action, and so forth. And they discovered that this new category could be created and they were going to be considered white. And they lobbied quietly OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, to include them in the Asian American category. And no one really objected. So, okay, sure, you could be in the Asian American, not very many of you anyway. So we randomly have this category for Asian American, which includes people from anywhere from India to Malaysia and the Philippines. We have people who are ethnographically completely different. They're, they're anthropologically separate groups. They're genetically have nothing in common. They have different religions, different cultures. Sometimes they have long histories of, of enmity towards each other. But really, I mean, what does someone from Pakistan have in common with someone from Hong Kong? And what does he have in common with an Austronesian individual from the Philippines? And the Filipinos, meanwhile, were put in the Asian category to make sure the Asian category was larger, right? But they could have been put in the Hispanic category because many of them have Spanish surnames and have some Spanish ancestry from the long Spanish occupation. Or most logically, since the Philippines are... Pacific Islands, when the Pacific Islander category was broken off from the Asian category, the Filipinos, you would think, would go to that one, but no, they're still Asian. So those are just, you know, examples of, of randomness. And then, oh, well, one, one last one, Persians, Uzbeks, Turks, Arabs, Jews, North Africans, Berbers, all the North African and Middle Eastern people, even though they often think of themselves as being other or not white or Middle Eastern or whatever it may be, they are all by fiat declared to be white. Yeah, well, and, and, and I think part of what's interesting there is it's not just, you know, the, these classifications don't just come about because of, you know, bureaucratic convenience. It's also because of a, a particular political project, which you've alluded, right? So you, you write actually... The U.S., Canada in the 1950s mostly dumped racial classifications because they looked at the horrors of the Holocaust. They said, we want nothing to do with this. And America might almost have gone that way, except we had a sort of individual and in, in independent race-associated political agenda, i.e. the civil rights movement. We were like, we need to care about equality between the races, which meant constructing a bureaucracy that was focused on redistributing access to goods, services, and jobs. And then... Once you had sort of a, a position of privilege in the legal sense that could be afforded to people in certain classes, I think there's a there's a huge amount of jockeying around what you know. Do do you get to be a beneficiary of affirmative action? So so you write the book. I I, I think these are really interesting. The sort of cases of you, you talk about the 
the, the sort of edge cases for legal whiteness, where there are lots of white minorities that sort of try to lobby to get special, the Italians and the Polish and the Cajuns. Can you sort of talk a little bit about what those cases tell us? Sure. So I think, first of all, I want to elaborate on your first point a little bit, which is that, I mean, even with the civil rights movement, we could have had a system, which I think was originally what the framers of the 1964 Act had intended, which was that, okay, you applied for a job, there's a sign, no blacks wanted, you sue, or someone makes it clear, we don't hire black people here, you sue, or someone makes an obviously racist statement at work and then fires you, you sue. So in other words, you know, you don't really need classifications or categories for that sort of thing. But it turns out that the way the civil rights bureaucracy with the cooperation of the courts interpret our civil rights laws was that we that statistical evidence of discrimination can be by itself or in combination with other things, evidence of discrimination. And you can't get statistical evidence of discrimination unless you keep the statistics. So even without affirmative action, there becomes this issue of the only groups that in practice are going to be protected from anything other than the most overt kinds of discrimination are those groups that the government keeps statistics on because you can't prove statistical discrimination unless there are statistics out there. So that's the first area of jockey. The second area is, of course, when we get to affirmative action. Now, when these categories were put into the federal code, put into the federal register by OMB, they were really meant primarily for data gathering, again, to for different agencies to see how different groups are doing and for keeping track of potential discrimination. And it was written into the regulation that these are, first of all, not meant to be anthropological or genetic categories, which they're not, but also they're not meant to be used for eligibility for any federal program. In other words, we're saying these are not meant to be affirmative action categories because that's not we, we haven't said that these are the groups that necessarily face the most discrimination or that contribute the most of diversity, whatever your rationale for affirmative action is. These are just the categories that for administrative convenience, we are good enough to figure out the broad trends of either discrimination or how different groups are doing educationally. But as soon as they go into effect, they become the affirmative action categories that we all know and love. And thus, of course, there's even more controversy among like, you know, especially among groups like Italians and Poles who are like, well, wait a second, Mexicans and Cubans have always been considered to be white people in the United States. They're just Catholic ethnic groups like we are, and especially for the Italians. We are from mostly from Sicily. We have dark skin. We have faced discrimination. We have faced violence in the United States. We face stereotypes. We have low socioeconomic indicators. Why do people from Cuba get affirmative action benefits and we do not. And there's really no one's actually ever bothered to try to answer that question. None of these categories have ever been official because no one's litigated them really, as I mentioned, none of these categories have ever been uh, justified as to why we have the categories we do. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. will say just, you know, one of, I, I was glad in the book you talked about the Cajuns or the Acadians. Gregory Clark in his book, The Sun Also Rises, which is about the history, the genetic, the history of intergenerational mobility, talks, has like a 10 page aside about American Acadians, where he's like, yeah, they, they, they have basically worse socioeconomic outcomes than American black people, and they're systematic, and they can never escape crushing poverty. And nobody talks about them as a beneficiary of a potential beneficiary of affirmative action. Aaron, sorry, I just wanted to please go ahead. Well, yeah. So, 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 I mean, that's, that's one example of just sort of a, an absurdity of these categories. Another that you talk about is that a 
So someone who's classified as Hispanic, who say from Spain and relatively white skinned, there's this Supreme Court doctrine called Batson, which prohibits you from being struck from a jury pool on the basis of race. And so because Hispanic is like one of these categories, as I understand it, you can't, you couldn't strike a, a Spanish person just for being Spanish or Hispanic. You could, however, strike an Italian-American just for being Italian-American, right? Or at least you might be able to because Italian-American is not a race. Right. Well, this is one of the weird things I came across I didn't know before I wrote the book, which is, yeah, there's a thing called Batson. You're not supposed to be able to strike jurors based solely on their race. But by race, we generally mean with regard to civil rights laws that this would include national origin as well to the extent that people think of a group as a race yeah. or something like a race. So Hispanics actually are not officially a race, although it's often treated that way in popular discourse. Officially, it's an ethnicity. That's why you're first asked whether you're Hispanic or not on the forums sure. or you're asked yeah. what your race is. But for whatever reason, courts that have addressed this issue have said, well, Hispanics are sufficiently known to be subject to, this great, to the equivalent of racial discrimination that you can't strike people would say Spanish last names from a jury, but Italians are not enough like a race unless they could really show that they, that, that they're, that they face systemic discrimination in mm-hmm. the legal system that you can't strike. You are, you are allowed in fact to strike people with Italian American names, Italian sounding names. And it doesn't really make any sense doctrinally, except if you think, well, the reason Italians don't have sort of objective evidence of discrimination against them is that they're not an official minority group and Hispanics are right. So that, so. Right. But isn't that, that, that gets to something else I wanted to ask about, which is, it, it seems like there's often a sort of circularity here where, you know, you can say, well, like there's no evidence Italians are oppressed. And the reason there's no evidence is because we don't see them as a minority group about which the government should collect statistics. And then if you demand, say, well, we'd like the data collected on us, you know, you should, someone can always rejoin, well, but why should we treat you as a racial minority on which we collect statistics? After all, there's no evidence you're oppressed. Like you can kind of play this game where where just the categories become self-perpetuating through this sort of weird, circular rationalization process. Absolutely. And we mentioned the Cajun. So there's actually a very perceptive report published by the U.S. Civil Rights Commission in 1973. I think I'm the only person, I dug this up actually by accident when I was looking for something else, where they talked about the problems with the emerging categories. They, they were not yet official categories. They talked about problems with the emerging categories. They talked about some of the obvious problems like that they try to lump all people who have Spanish ancestry into one category, obscures the very different cultural, economic, et cetera appearances, self-identity of Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and Mexicans. But they also talked about the fact that there are these other groups out there that have faced historical discrimination that tend to be isolated from the more general population and that no one is going to take account of them. Cajuns are one example. French Quebecois in in New England was another. Portuguese in New England. I think the best example because you could easily have seen things going the other way, but is that no one really paid attention to Appalachian whites who still have the lowest socioeconomic indicators of basically any group in the United States. Though, you know, you may 
you may or may not have been familiar with this, but you know, the famous book by Harrington, Michael Harrington, The Other America, focused primarily on rural poverty in Appalachia and was one of the leading intellectual foundations of the Great Society. And when Lyndon Johnson was selling the Great Society, he went to all these poor places in Appalachia. But as soon as we start using official categories and we decided everyone of European or origin is just generically Caucasian, Appalachians kind of fall off the cognitive map of the country. And they've only, you, know, you didn't really hear anything about Appalachians for a long time until they were sort of rediscovered recently because of the opioid epidemic. It was just, wow, this, you know, they have a really low, people in Appalachia have really low life expectancies, horrible unemployment, large scale public assistance dependency, but no one's been studying them or were, or doing anything for them for, you know, 50, 60 years because they're just white. Right. I mean, th this is a problem that I run up against, you know, I'm a, I, I, I dabble in data in my day job and, and, you know, the, it's, it's very hard to get down into that level of specificity. You have to sort of go digging for it as opposed to using the, the easier, readily apparent, readily available categories that like you need to know. It's, it's very easy to bid people by race and Hispanic ethnicity because they are tracked across the bureaucracy in a way that as you were alluding to other more complex categories aren't. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I wonder if though we could talk about, we've talked sort of about some of the word edge cases. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, 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 the phenomenon of Asianness and the problems that that has posed. Sure. So again, we traditionally had relatively large or well, never very large populations of Chinese, Japanese, and Filipino Americans. Those were our three big Asian groups and they didn't mix much. I mean, there was no Asia town in, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, there's, there was Chinatown, there was Japantown in Los Angeles, but there was no Asia town because, you know, just like you wouldn't have European town, people come from different places with different languages and cultures are not the same. They didn't mix. And, you know, there was some mutual enmity, of course, also between the Chinese and Japanese when, once the Japanese government invaded Manchuria during World War II. So the groups were not. They didn't see themselves as being the same. Of course, people who were racist would often just not really tell a difference. And that was the argument for sort of including them together that someone, but people just don't distinguish. They just look at them as Asians. So, but nevertheless, on the census and so forth, we did just tabulate them people separately as Chinese, Japanese, or Filipino, but once we're get, but, the, but really the problem was if you want to get any kind of meaningful data about anything, there weren't enough of each group to bother tracking them. So it's a, again, administrative, there weren't really any Asian American groups out there. There were a few activists who didn't really have any influence yet, but there weren't really any Asian American groups out there pushing for an Asian American category. As far as I could tell, it was just like, oh, well, we have this. Japanese and this Chinese and this Filipinos, there's only like a few million of them all together. So we'll just lump them in to the same general category. And again, if you think about the original purpose was largely to track civil rights stuff, this makes a certain amount of sense. Because again, someone who hates, just hates to eat, you know, people from Japan probably hates people from China too. And if you see there's some employer in the Bay Area who has no Asian employees, despite 20% of the workforce being Chinese or Japanese, that's probably indicative of something. But then when you start using this for either affirmative action purposes, pro or con now, right? Because it can also hurt people, or you start using it for trying to actually figure out 
educational attainment, income, and so forth. And meanwhile, the Asian population becomes much more internally diverse. It all becomes a little ridiculous because Indian people from India have the highest average incomes of any ethnic group in the U.S. J Japanese are quite high too. Chinese, especially ones who aren't first generation, do very well economically on average. But then you have other groups like Cambodians and Hmong and Malaysians and Pakistanis who are below average in socioeconomic prosperity. And yet, so when universities, though, are deciding, hey, how many Asians do, they, do we want? Well, we already have lots of Asians. Well, we really have lots of Indians and Chinese and probably not a single Hmong. But then the Hmong actually wind up getting discriminated against in favor of, you know, the a Mexican-American or, or somebody because that adds to diversity. Similarly, though, if you're, tr if you're trying to do any kind of study, what does it tell you? I, so just for example, another thing that's talked about in my book is the fact that NIH and FDA require medical researchers to tabulate their research subjects by race, even when there's really no reason to think that there should be any distinction by race, as with COVID vaccine trials. But, you know, they have to have a certain percentage of Asians. So I saw a study along these lines and I emailed the authors and it says Asians, but really who are your research subjects? They said they're all Chinese. So he knew what they were, but so, but that does not tell you anything about Indians. It tell you anything about Filipinos. They had really no genetic commonality. So it's, this vaccine is now deemed safe for Asians. We haven't tested Asians broadly. We've tested one particular subject, one ethnic group, the Han Chinese. Right. Well, so so I think we, we want to get back to that in a minute because the, the whole medicine thing is really fascinating. But but I think that that gets at maybe a a broader question first, which is you you alluded to the cognitive map of the United States and the kind of the, the this inherited network of concepts and memes by which we construct reality. A big theme in your book is that this cognitive map that basically just comes from these artificially constructed government categories. And so what I want to ask about is, you know, to what extent is the narrative of conflict between those categories, and namely I'm thinking of wokeness, the successor ideology, whatever you want to call it, the, the kind of hegemonic narrative of one of these categories, namely whites oppressing all the other ones. It seems to me that the one implication of your book is that narrative is itself largely dependent on contingent and constructed categories that have don't have much principled basis so so to what extent are sort of a lot of our current culture war controversies just a function of a of a racial classification scheme that could as you say in principle be legally challenged or even abolished yeah i mean i, I think obviously the black white conflict well predates yes any of this, and that would be present. And I think, you know, it's, a, it's sort of an interesting political phenomenon because I think that Black-oriented civil rights groups initially welcomed this big tent kind of thing where they could add Hispanics and Asians to the civil rights coalition as a general people of color kind of coalition because for two reasons. One, it gives them a lot more people. And the second thing is that it allows you to portray this as, oh, this isn't just something to help blacks, which may not sell with the rest of the public, but it's for diversity. It's to make sure that all these different groups get, get, get their share in society. But we see some fraying on the edges there now for a couple of reasons. One of which is that 
African Americans are a, a a just a one third or so minority of all quote unquote people of color. If you're including Latino, all Latinos as people of color. So with things like government contracts, unlike university admi admissions, where everyone gets the same preference regardless of what group you're from, the people who are getting government contracts now are often. Uh, Asians and Hispanics, often immigrants themselves, and people are high resentful. Hey, my ancestors were enslaved and Jim Crow and all that. And I don't, and why are you getting this preference? And the other uh, thing, which was very apparent in the last election, is that Latinos are not following the path that left wing activists like the Ford Foundation, which helped encourage this the political activism among Mexican Americans and what they hoped. They were hoping that Latinos would be seen and see and see themselves as a racial minority akin to African Americans and would vote like African Americans overwhelmingly for the Democrats. But as we know, you know, that's not turned out to be the case that Democrats get a majority of their votes, but once you get past the first generation and people who are more comfortable economically, they start to vote a lot like their white compatriots. They intermarry at very high rates. And a lot of people who have one Latino grandparent don't even usually consider themselves Latino at all. And it turns out that at least, you know, some demographers and sociologists think that most of the Latino population is eventually going to just meld into the white population and will have an even larger white, so the, 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 the whole idea that we are going to have a majority minority country depends on this notion that Latinos will continue to see and be, see themselves and be seen as a minority that despite the best efforts of activists in the government and every major university in the country has special Latino houses and Latino, sorry, Latin X houses now and so forth, that Latinos are actually assimilating pretty well into the general population. So now African-American activists and intellectuals are saying, wait a second, Maybe instead of referring to racism, we want to talk about anti-blackness because we don't, we want the separate experience of African-Americans to be reflected and not just lump us in with Latinos. Maybe instead of talking about people of color, we should talk about BIPOC, black indigenous people of color. It's quite ambiguous whether that is supposed to be black, indigenous and people and other people of color or black indigenous people of color, excluding everybody else. But either way, they're obviously trying to focus on the perceived plight of black people and Native Americans and downgrading Asians and Hispanics within the coalition. Yeah, so, so I just want to follow up is, you know, you, you describe how these categories kind of come about at one moment in time and then with a few minor amendments largely persist in their current form, even as the social reality changes, even as some Hispanics are kind of, you know, not proceeding along the path that the Ford Foundation wanted, even as immigration has totally scrambled the racial makeup of the country, and yet the categories still persist and kind of the contradiction between the categories and the underlying social reality just gets larger and larger. You know, you float at one point in the book, well, maybe we need to just redraw the categories in a much more fine-tuned way. But even if we manage to do that, that doesn't your own sort of analysis suggest that there's kind of an inherent, there's always a tendency to just persist with whatever categories we have. And if that's right, like, let's say we redraw the categories, you know, demographics won't stop changing. Won't we just maybe come up with the same problem like 30 years later? I mean, is it, or is it possible to maybe find a way to like adapt the categories on the fly without this bureaucratic inertia? 
Yeah, so I sort of suggest is that we have we should really try to figure out why we have these categories and what we're they're being used for. And on that basis, recalibrate them. And what I suggest is that generally we should just have a separation of race and state and not use the categories at all. But on the other hand, for discrimination purposes, they're probably not great, but they're probably adequate. We don't really have, you know, given in the age of affirmative action, we don't have a lot of statistical evidence of large companies discriminating anyway. So it's not really that important in that sense. And then maybe if you're university affirmative action, you could limit things. You could either truly look for, you could truly look for diversity on the one hand and not be stuck with these narrow categories. And thus, if someone is like a Bosnian refugee, they may give you, they may actually add diversity the way that someone from Spain doesn't, right? If that's what you're truly looking for an interesting class. And then for for like Native Americans who live on reservations, and African-American descendants of slaves, as opposed to immigrants from Africa and whatnot, you might narrow the categories to them. It would still raise issues. It's a much, it's much narrower. It's much more objectively based. The African, the American descendants of slaves is, you know, a little bit problematic because first of all, there are a fair number of white people, self-perceived white people who have African ancestry. So you somehow have to figure out why they're not included or how not to include them without making it a racial category. And then of course, racial interracial marriage is increasing. So you really want somehow to limit this to people who perceive themselves or perceived by others to be black and are descendants of slaves. And interestingly enough, I don't think that is a problem. I don't think it's as much of a problem as it, as it, as it might be. Because frankly, you know, really no one checks, no one checks up on what box you check nowadays. Anyone can really check anything they want. And I, one thing I was looking out for, I didn't see a single case ever in the history of the United States since the 1970s with affirmative action, where any student has ever been punished, expelled, suspended, or ever even really questioned about what racial identity they put on their application form. So, and I think there's evidence that there's a fair amount of fraud with regard to Native American identity. There's also, with both Native American and Hispanic identity, a fair amount of what you might call exaggeration. Yes, you could, you can theoretically claim it based on the definition, but you're really only one 256 Cherokee, so why would you be getting affirmative action? That does not seem to happen with regard to African Americans. You, I mean, you do have Rachel DeLazo, I mean, there's the occasional situation, but it seems that people that being black is some combination of enough of a stigma still, but also that enough that people will actually notice you. Like, hey, you wrote down black, you don't look black, that people are much more leery about exaggerating or making up an, an African-American identity in other groups. Yeah, and I think I think well, and 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 this gets us more generally towards how to think about solutions. And we 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 talked a lot about context. So you talk about you talk about in the book. One one approach you talk about is is sort of focusing in on specific categories who have been historically harmed. What are some other ways you think about sort of trying to alter the classification system? You know, if 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 you if you were the president tomorrow, what would you do? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is it's the most ridiculous. And I know Aaron said he wants to get back to that. So I'm sorry for jumping the gun here. But the most, no, that's I, great. I, I would completely get rid of the requirement that medical and scientific yeah. research use race at all because the racial categories are not scientific. No one really ever, the only possible defense of them scientifically is that there is some correlation with genetics and therefore perhaps it's better than nothing. Although with Hispanics, that doesn't even work because Hispanic 
Hispanic are internally multiracial. They could be indigenous of you know, native origin. They could be of Spanish origin, African origin, Asian origin, any combination. So just like Americans, right? So it doesn't make any sense to use Hispanic. But I would abolish that and either encourage researchers to use much more finely grained categories. Like if you're going to use an ethnic category, don't use Hispanics. Use groups that are actually were separate from the other mainstream populations and therefore may actually have genetic anomalies that affect treatments, Ashkenazic Jews, Icelanders, Hungarians, you know, Aboriginal Australians, people who are genetically isolated. So that would make a lot more sense to check on them than a broad group like Hispanics. And also, you know, in general, if you're doing social science research, try to figure out how groups are succeeding or not in society, what problems they face, instead of using, again, these broad categories, you want, you know, if you're a sound research, should be like, okay, even with regard to Native Americans, even in like the same state, there'll be vast differences between the, the residents of Reservation A, which is one Indian group, Reservation B, and those who are of mixed race and just live in Phoenix, but consider themselves to be Indian. There's no reason as a social scientist, you would ever put those three groups together because they're just, you know, they're culturally, geographically, et cetera, distinct. That's like, that's the first thing, because that's absurd and it has really potentially horrific consequences. I never like to compare anything to Nazis or whatever, but to me, once you start saying, oh, maybe we should start giving you know, Aaron alluded to this already, we should start divvying up medical treatment by what racial group belongs to. I mean, to me, this is like Mengele stuff. This has really, really horrific potential implications. And that's, that's that I'm more disturbed by that, I think, than anything else in the book. So that's the first thing I would do is say no race in medicine. You can look at genetics, you can look at, you know, file more finely tuned ethnicity if you have good scientific reason to do so, but that's it. Beyond that, I would just, you know, generally... Again, say, well, why do you should figure out in any given case, my strong presumption would be against having racial classifications because it's constitutionally problematic. It's sociologically problematic. We, people say, well, why are you so much more skeptical of dividing people up by race or your know, race used in college admissions as opposed to athletics or, you know, whether you play the tuba or whatever it was like, well, when's the last time there was a war between the tuba players and the violinists? Or when it was the last time there was a war between alumni of a major university and non-alumni or, or, or athletes and non-athletes. Yeah, these categories, it may, it may be bad to utilize them for whatever they're utilized for, but they don't create the uh, strong tribalistic feeling that ethnicity and race does that lead to conflict and wars and so forth and so on. So my strong presumption would be against using the categories at all. But if you have, especially by the government, people could feel free to define themselves however they want, because that encourages people to identify that way and organize themselves that way. It's unhealthy for society. But if you are going to use the categories, figure out what the purpose of using the categories for is, and then what categories make sense in that. Don't just use these broad categories that were made up for a very specific reason. Now, I think Aaron may have alluded to the fact like, yeah, but you know, once the categories are out there, it's kind of always going to be political jockeying. They're always going to, people are always going to be trying to expand them. And I think that's true. That's another good reason to presumptively abolish them entirely. But at least in an ideal world, to the extent we think we need to have these for civil rights enforcement or other things, you should at least be figuring out, well, which, which people are we actually trying to help in what way and which categories make sense for those reasons. 
Yeah, I, I want to just make one quick point about medicine. You know, the the categories you're talking about, they they part of there's another circularity here with medicine too, because if you have to use these categories, what you end up seeing is in, when they do the health equity studies, they'll say, and this is what they actually said in Utah, non-white, non-Hispanic whites, you know, are at lower risk of death from COVID than basically everyone else. And the whole category of non-Hispanic, I mean, this, as you say, is totally arbitrary. And of course, the category of people of color just throws in a bunch of like random arbitrary categories. This doesn't make any scientific sense, but because those are the categories, that's what the research looks to for, for disparities. And so then we see all of these disparities, which then serves to justify the the allocation of care based on race and you know people will say well we controlled for x y and z which often isn't true but even if it were true i think an important point to see is that it would still be bullshit because the very categories that you're <laughs> using are are totally made up right and there's no actual reason why you should do a like even if you do a study on like white versus non-white COVID outcomes and you control for socioeconomics and everything, white versus non-white it, it just it encompasses so much diversity that it that it's effectively meaningless. And yet, because we've said those are the categories, that becomes the social reality that serves to justify the policies. You know, it's 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 not just that this stuff constitutes our mental map of the world; it's that it constitutes our mental map of the world and then serves to justify political and active and actual intervention in the world that can be very destructive question mark yeah i, I, no, I want to just kind of make that point about because because you actually i've looked into this and like when you look at the studies they often are using these categories and that's part of the problem right right i mean there you know this is this is actually a problem with all medical research that purports to find racial differences, even in just on a you know, biological mm -hmm. basis, is that they start with the presumption that there's differences to be found and then try to find yes. That's not really how you normally do research. Instead, you you should start with a blank slate where we all know what we're gonna find and then see what happens. So that's a critique of even using, you know, even in the rare cases where they find biological differences that may affect medical treatment, the question is that a real effect or is it only that, well, this is what you're looking for. If you look for mm -hmm. enough times by random chance, you will sometimes find it because, you know, studies are only done to a 95% confidence rate, which means one in 20 times you will get random false positives. So yes, yeah, so that's a, that's an issue. And it turns out, you know, there's no medical reason to think that, or scientific reason to think that COVID affects people of color or whatever, or members of racial categories. I mean, it's possible that vitamin D is an issue and people with darker skin get less vitamin D. But then again, that's still a separate issue. Then you should be looking at people's skin color to try encouraging them to be taking vitamin D supplements, not saying that there's something racial involved because there's some very light-skinned people who are in the racial categories and some very dark-skinned people who are characterized as white. And the most outrageous, you know, the most single most outrageous thing, I think, in the entire book is that I had discovered at some point that Moderna had said, we are delaying our COVID vaccine trials because we don't have enough members of minority groups. And wasn't really clear on what basis they made that decision. But then I discovered the head of NIH bragged later that because of him, they delayed. He was proud of this. And I thought, you're proud that they knew 
how many people died because you delayed this vaccine. There was no medical, you know, the, the, there's no medical reason to think that mRNA works differently in Asian people or Hispanic people, especially like it's a completely multiracial, ridiculous category scientifically. But he was very proud of this. And the response I get is, well, this, this goes to your circularity point. Well, if they didn't test it on quote unquote enough members of minority groups, then minority groups wouldn't trust the vaccine. And my response is it's only because we say that the vaccine won't be safe unless it's tested on enough members of minority groups that members of minority groups worry about this to begin with. I got more, I'm I'm an Ashkenazic Jew. Ashkenazic Jews have a lot of weird genetic anomalies because we're really inbred. We're all descended from a very small group of people like 500 years ago. But I don't sit around worrying. And no one I know is Jewish was worried. Oh my God, they didn't test this vaccine as Ashkenazic Jews because no one collects data on us. So we don't even think about it in those terms. So the only reason this becomes the issue is because we use those categories to begin with. And, and, and I mean, I sort of want to ask one one question before we just move to closing thoughts about all this, which is, you know, I I think anyone who reads your book will will come away from it thinking, holy shit, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but but it seems to me that that the 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 kind of proposal you you have, which is, well, if you're going to collect the data, do it with all these more fine grained categories. That as like an academic, you know, that makes sense, and you can imagine academics doing it this way, but. But government regulators, you know, look, we've seen who's in the government. I mean, they're not smart. They don't understand statistics. It seems to me that the, the kind of practical challenge to your proposal is that governments have limited resources, both both in terms of just how many people they have, but also like epistemically, you know, cognitively, like they just may not be able to sort of handle this much complexity. Like, how do we, it, it seems like if the government is going to be in the business of dictating what kind of data is is collected, there's always going to be a bias towards simplicity simply because government scientists are not like Harvard trained statisticians, right? So, so like, is it possible, do you think, for government to play any role in regulating these categories without it thereby devolving into the irrationalities that you're worried about? It's entirely possible the answer to that is no, because politics, you know, this is, this is why I'm not a political philosopher or to the extent I like political philosophy. I only like people like David Schmitz at the University of Arizona who incorporate public choice and game theory and whatnot, because we all think of the ideal world, what, what the situation should be, but why, how is that going to happen in real life? But there are at least two answers to your question of how we could make things better. One is that the courts could police this a lot more and could say that actually deciding what categories to use are subject to strict scrutiny. If you could show us compelling interest in why you have to collect data this way, we'll accept it. But otherwise, we're not going to, right? So that's one possibility. The other thing is, at least in some of these contexts, the interest groups that have been behind keeping the statistics the way they are might change their minds because it's not to their advantage any longer. We already talked about the fact that African-American activists are increasingly unhappy that their concerns are being sublimated to larger non-African-American minority groups, a larger population. But also, you know, just for example, we had, I didn't even, I had no idea this was the case, but 10% of Americans who are what we call African-American are, were born abroad. And if you include them plus their children, it's, I don't know exactly what that number is, but it's obviously even higher, let's say somewhere in the 15 to 20% range. Now, African immigrants do better on various socioeconomic measures 
than African-Americans in general do. So to the extent that you're gathering these statistics in this sort of crude, naive way where you're just lumping everyone who has African ancestry together, what you wind up doing is actually giving a false picture of the progress economically and educationally the African-Americans are making. Harvard could say, well, where some we have X percent of African-Americans kids in our class, but then when you actually dig down, it turns out you have a lot of Africans, you have a lot of Caribbeans, you have a lot of people with one white parent or two white or like multiracial background with one black grandparent, and they all check off the white, the black box. So it looks so Harvard able to say, oh, look how great we're doing with pretty African-American students, but the, you know, that's not, those aren't the people that these policies were really aimed towards initially, at least not primarily. So there is, so, you know, there, you know, so the courts can police this a little bit. There is some hope that there is some self-interest by certain groups in trying to make this stuff a little bit more rational because the data, you know, better data would actually be helpful to, to their goals. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. It's a trade press book. People want, you know, solutions like everyone who read the book said, oh, and the initial draft said you need to come up with some idea of solutions. You can't just write, you know, there's a problem out there. But, you know, I think, but, you know, more generally, I think my big, my prime solu primary solution is despite saying you could do this, you could do this. My primary solution is that in general, we should go for the separation of church and state for a lot of the same reasons we have separation of church and state that we don't think that. It's a really good idea to have the government mediating these really emotional, tribalistic kind of conflicts between people and that we're better off letting society, social, the social realm deal with this on their own. Charles, what, what has this conversation left you with? I, you know, I, I feel like we're almost just getting started. There's a lot, there's a lot more there. No, I mean, I think, I think we've, I, I, I sort of walked into the conversation interested in how government norms produce sort of cultural and political trends phenomena. And, you know, I, I believe that for it. I believe that now the law is a teacher here more so than in other places. But I think, I think, A, A, you know, it's, it's really apparent after this conversation, the extent to which you think of like, you know, Ibram Kendiism, where all you do is you bin people by race and then you look at disparities and outcomes by race. And you say that's a product of racism and that's what policy is to focus on. That's, Clearly an ideology that we can only ever talk about because of these constructed racial categories, because of the, 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 the bins that we put together in the first place. And I think that's a microcosm of the broader phenomenon where like once you have, have put together the terms in which you talk about the world, the, the, the politics follow thereafter. And so, you know, I think the, the other point vis-a-vis David's sort of concern about what do we do next is like when you poke holes in the absurdity of these categories, maybe you get people to rethink them a little bit. I'm not sure what that does. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I second everything you just said. I would add, yeah, there's this guy, Mel Foster, who I think he identifies as, I guess you could call it race abolitionism. He believes that we should just abolish the concept of race and not think of ourselves in racial terms. And when I see how absurd all of these classification schemes are and, and, how difficult I think it would be in practice to develop better ones simply because of the bureaucratic inertia and other forces that we've been talking about. I, I have to say, I, I mean, in your book, David, you, you at the end sort of contrast the French model where they just don't collect this data and don't sort people into racial groups with sort of your idea, a kind of idealized solution where we still collect some of this data, but we just are a lot more careful about it. I guess I find myself not necessarily convinced the French approach is ideal or the better one, but at least thinking 
there is a strong case to be made for that. And, and I think the more you see the absurdities of these categories, the more to, at least the more tempted I am, at least by just saying, you know what, at this point, the, the conditions on the ground are such that we really don't need, there, there is not an existential emergency that warrants the creation of these categories anymore. And even if getting rid of them would have costs, it might be the best thing to do all else equal. But that's obviously a pretty radical answer. And I don't know if I'm ready to fully endorse it. We'll, we'll report back later on whether or not he's ready to endorse it. Why don't we, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. We'll offer some recommendations for our listeners. David, we'll invite you to recommend some stuff, your work, other people's work in a minute. But I guess, Aaron, Aaron, do you want to go first? Yeah. You know, I don't think I've recommended this before, but if I have apologies, it's a Hugh Davis Graham's collision course, which is cited repeatedly in David's book. And it is a, it, it, it's another book that traces to some extent, the genealogy of these categories, albeit less thoroughly. But what it does do that that's interesting is it shows how affirmative action policy developed at around the same time as there was this unprecedented inflow of immigration from diverse parts of the world and how that eventually created conflicts between uh, tensions between the sort of immigration regime on the one hand and the affirmative action regime on the other, because the affirmative action regime was predicated on, as we said, the sort of black white model of, of American race relations that just failed to obtain as more and more diverse immigrants were added in. I, I recommend it for everyone because it's, it's another book that gets at how when you construct these kind of categories with one particular set of purposes in mind, and then the underlying social reality changes and you keep trying to apply the categories, it creates all sorts of problems. And he, he does a very good job walking through that vis-a-vis -vis immigration. Yeah, mine is actually by another author who David cites with some frequency, John John Scrantony, who's a he's a professor at UC San Diego, who's written extensively on the history and sociology of affirmative action. Aaron, you and I both read his book, Ironies of Affirmative Action, which is about the sort of peculiar and often haphazard way in which modern affirmative action was invented. I think it's a great work. I like a lot of Scrantony's work, and I strongly commend it. To our listeners, David, do you have recommendation from your work, from other people's work, et cetera? I wholly endorse both of the recommendations that you guys gave. I would have recommended the same. Those are really, I mean, if you ask me, well, besides what you've written, what should someone read <laughs> about how these categories developed and so forth, those would be the ones. Changing course is great. It's a little bit outdated. I think it's almost 20 years old now. So that's the only caveat I have there. But for the history, it's great. So of course, I would love to plug my own book, which is again, a classified, the untold story of racial classification in America, which is available at Amazon and hopefully your neighborhood bookseller, but I can't guarantee it. And similarly, I wrote a law review article called the modern American law of race that the book draws on. I mean, the book's much longer and basically the, that article turned into most of chapter one and scattered parts of other chapters. It's more academic. It's more heavily footnoted. But if either you're too cheap to buy my book or too poor to buy my book, or you're like, I'm not sure that I buy what he's selling. Let me read something for free. And then decide whether I want to buy the whole book or get it from the library. I guess that's fine too. Or ask your library to buy it. You could just Google the modern American love race Bernstein. You will find a free link or two to that article. And that will give you the gist of, of what I'm talking about. Great. Thank you again so much, David, for joining us on the program. 
Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you have questions, comments, concerns, affirmative actions, et cetera, that you'd like to direct to us, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again. 